السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners Last month I spoke on the topic of tazkiyah, the nurturing of the soul. And I promised that this month, inshallah, I would speak on the topic of the diseases of the heart. It's a natural follow-on to what I was mentioning last month. Namely, We are who we are, not because of our bodies and our physical properties, but rather because of what and who we are within. It's not the body, the flesh, the blood, the bones that make us who we are. Rather, it's the spirit, the ruh, that resides in us. And in view of that, we should ensure that we don't neglect the essence of our existence, which is within the ruh, the spirit, not the body. Unfortunately, the rule of life is, and the custom of most people, is that we lavish attention on our bodies and neglect our spirits. In everything, including health. And when it comes to health, we're all very health conscious, or we would we like to be health conscious, we would like to be health conscious. The amount of money and time we spend on our bodies in terms of cosmetics, medicines, supplements, vitamins, good food, superfoods. Although we don't always succeed because enough gets the better of us, but to some degree at least, we would like to and we do make an attempt to remain healthy. Because we want to live 
we want to live as long as possible. The love of life drives us to ensuring that we remain healthy so that we can live for longer. We eat healthily to live for long, to look good. We train, we exercise in order to again look good and to hopefully live for longer. But all of this, whether it's cosmetics, whether it's healthy eating, a healthy lifestyle, or fitness and exercise, diet and exercise, all of these things are geared towards maintaining the health or promoting the health of the body, not the spirits. And it's a huge industry. The fitness industry is worth billions. The health industry is worth billions. In fact, for most countries throughout the world, the greatest expenditure, in fact, not just countries, but for the majority of people across the globe, per head expenditure, both individually as well as collectively by governments, the highest expenditure is probably in the field of health. So it's a huge industry and yet all of it is geared towards preserving just this physical body which ultimately doesn't mean much because it's merely a box, a crate, a cage, a carriage, a packaging, a mode of transport. It's a vehicle. And how foolish would a person be if they got a car and starved themselves, literally actually starved themselves, in order to polish and paint the car. They remained unclothed, naked, in order to give the car a shine. They actually deprived themselves physically of food and starved in the process and weakened themselves, malnourished themselves in order to polish and clean and colour and paint their car, who remained filthy and dirty, allowed grime, dirt and filth to accumulate on their bodies and became totally unkempt and dishevelled, merely to save time and money in order to spend that time and money on the car in polishing it, valeting it. What would we think of such a person? And yet that's exactly what we are doing with ourselves. The body is merely a, a mode of transport, a vehicle. And the real essence of life, the real passenger, the real person, the one or the thing that really matters is the ruh that lives within. And we are starving and neglecting that ruh. We are refusing to nourish it, to clothe it, to protect it, to maintain its health. We are allowing it to become sick, malnourished, and die a very slow death so that we can look after this vehicle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
when he speaks of the hypocrites in the Qur'an, in fact, right at the beginning of the Qur'an, after Surah Al-Fatiha, and at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the hypocrites, the munafiqun, for the first time in the Qur'an. And Allah describes them in the following words. فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ فَزَادَهُمُ اللَّهُ مَرَضًا That in their hearts there is a disease, there is a sickness. So Allah increased them in sickness. And prior to mentioning the hypocrites, Allah actually mentions the believers and the unbelievers. But it's only for the hypocrites, the munafiqun, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there is a disease in their hearts. Now, we as human beings, as Muslims, we recognize the life and the existence of the mind, the body, and the soul and spirit. That means we treat all of them equally. Of course, we treat the soul as being far more important, but when I say equally in that, we, we don't draw a distinction between these three in the sense that just as we, as Muslims, just as we believe that the body has to be maintained and protected and fed and nourished, we believe the mind has to be protected, fed, and nourished, and equally so. We believe that the soul needs to be cared for, protected, fed, nourished. And when I say we look at all of them equally, I mean that just as we recognize the importance of health for the body, we recognize the importance of health for the mind, equally so, we recognize the importance of health for the spirit, for the soul. Now, in Arabic, and throughout Islamic history, scholars have looked at sickness in a very unique way. And it's a brilliant definition of illness. In Arabic, Whichever word you use for illness, whether it's marad or suqm or illa, ultimately, sickness in Islamic and Arabic terminology throughout the centuries has referred to a departure from optimum health, from the center line of balance, of equilibrium, and of perfect health. Optimum health. So if we take that in relation to the body first. The body has to remain in balance. That is the optimum peak condition of the body. As soon as there is a departure from that optimum condition for the body, that is regarded as illness. No matter how severe it may be or slight, it's regarded as illness because it's a departure from the center line of balance, of equilibrium, and optimum health and uh, an optimum condition. 
The same goes to the mind. Now, that means that no one is perfectly healthy. We all have our conditions. We all have our departure from the centre line of balance and optimum health. With the mind, it's exactly the same. And this is important because mental illness or mental health is something which, which is relatively new. And the first mental hospital in Europe was established by the Muslims in Spain, in Andalus. Centuries ago, Muslims recognised the importance of mental health and that it could be treated and that it was a genuine psychological condition and that people with mental health were not treated as demons, as devils, as outcasts. Because Muslims believed and viewed mental illness just as they viewed physical illness in the sense that it's merely a departure from the center line of premium optimum health of perfection of balance and equilibrium and just as with the body the body is a complex organism and the most trivial of things can upset the balance of the body. You can have one thing to drink, one thing to eat. One thing might be good for one person, but not necessarily for the other. So, the slightest disruption in food, in drink, in sleep, any one of a myriad of reasons a myriad and a multitude of reasons could result in a person falling ill physically. And when they fall ill, it's simply a departure from the center line. And medicine and treatment are all an attempt to bring that person's health back from the departure back to the center line, back to balance and back to equilibrium. That's all it is. So Muslims recognize that just as every body being so complex as vulnerable and susceptible to becoming unbalanced. Similarly, the mind is vulnerable and susceptible because it's even more complex than the body of becoming unsettled, of becoming, of departing from the center line of optimum health. As a result, just as there is no stigma in a person falling ill, there should be no stigma in a person's mental health departing from that center line of balance and equilibrium. This is why Muslim physicians, Muslim doctors and ulama, they established the first mental hospital many, many centuries ago in Andalus, in Spain. And in fact, even before that, that was in Europe, but even before that in Arabia, in the Middle East, mental health patients were being treated as mental health patients, not as demons or devils and outcasts. Because Muslims had this holistic view of health and of illness, because they always regarded illness as merely a departure from their centre line. 
And that could happen to anyone. And this is why today as well, we... It's remarkable. Islam came to replace superstition. Islam came to rid people of falsehood and of superstition. And a perfect example is that of istikhara. Istikhara came to replace the superstitious methods of the Arabs of divination, of consultation. So the Arabs, in order to make a decision, would rely on owls, would rely on birds flying in a particular direction, would rely on arrows of divination, would rely on potluck, would rely on charlatans, witch doctors, shamans, medicine men, fortune tellers, soothsayers. Allah and his Rasul told the Muslims to rid themselves of all of this superstition. And instead of consulting gods, statues, supposed holy men, demons and devils, animals, arrows of divination, or random wild signs in nature and in the animal kingdom, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught us istikhara. And istikhara means the seeking of khayr, the seeking of Allah's blessing. Remarkably, we've reduced istikhara, which, claimed to, which came to replace superstition. We've now reduced the same istikhara to superstition itself. So we do istikhara, and then in order to make a decision or reach a decision after the istikhara, again, we've resumed what the Arabs would do. Consulting this person, that person, supposed holy men, looking for signs, relying on dreams and uncertain things. So we've reduced istikhara, to the very thing that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam brought istikhara to replace. Similarly, when it comes to mental health, Muslims have a unique history of treating mental health as a health condition. To be treated properly, medically, with understanding. Not to reduce, and what have we done? Just as with istikhara, We've now reduced mental health issues to superstition. And one of the reasons is a stigma. Rather that it's far easier for a person to believe that someone has done something wrong to me than it is for them to accept that there is something wrong with me. So nobody wishes to believe that there's an imbalance in my mind or something's happened to me or that something's wrong with me or that my mental health isn't in its peak optimum condition. That's very difficult for us to accept because there's a stigma attached to it. We would rather believe that some 
old lady in a remote village in some corner of the globe has cast a spell on us. Remarkably, we find that easier to believe. That someone's done sihr on us, or we are possessed by jinn, or demons, or that we are so special that jinns are pursuing us, and demons and devils are hounding us, and that we are victims, not just victims of human beings, but victims of spirits, ghoulies, demons, ghouls, demons, jinn. <coughs> Muslims have a history of recognizing mental health for what it is and to treat it professionally. So just as physically we recognize illness to be a departure from the center line of balance and of optimum health, similarly, we re- mentally we regard illness as being a departure from the center line of optimum health and of balance. And just as the body is vulnerable, the mind is vulnerable. Is there any stigma attached to a person falling physically ill, having a flu, even contracting cancer, even a fatal disease? Is there any stigma attached to it? None whatsoever. We calmly and casually tell people, I'm not coming to work today, I've got a flu, I've got a headache, I've got a stomachache, I've got a bad stomach, I've got a pain in my limbs, I've got a fever. It's, there is no stigma attached to it. And we seem to be very professional about it. If we have a toothache, we go to the dentist. If we have a stomachache, we take some medicine. If someone has a flu, what does everyone do, even with children? In fact, some of us don't even bother consulting the doctor. We just purchase over-the-counter medicine. But when it comes to issues relating to the mind or the psyche, instantly we turn to superstitious methods. And I say this because it's very dangerous. We will never get the treatments that we need, either for ourselves or our fellow, our family members and others. We remain sick in a very serious sense and we create havoc in our lives and the lives of others. But this is not today's topic. Today's topic is a sickness of the soul or the diseases of the heart and it's all related. Why is it related? Because just as Muslims have recognized sickness to be a certain thing in the physical body and in the, and in the mind and mental health, they regard sickness as being exactly the same thing when it comes to the spirit, which is a departure from the central line of optimum health and balance. And again, the soul is susceptible. It's vulnerable to disease, to illness, to sickness, to departure from the central line of optimum health. And as Muslims, we must maintain the health of all of these things, the mind, the body, and the spirit. Just as we wouldn't poison the body, we can't poison the mind, and we certainly can't poison our souls. Now, the heart has many diseases. Many. Just as I mentioned earlier, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he describes the hypocrites, says of them, فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٍ 
In their hearts there is a disease. Hypocrisy is a disease. That disease is aggravated by hypocritical behavior, by sins. There are many of the diseases of the heart. Pride, haughtiness, arrogance, self-conceit, envy, malice, hatred. All of these, and many more, are diseases of the heart, which are corrosive. In one hadith, Prophet describes envy as being something that consumes good deeds just like wood is consumed by fire. The fire of envy consumes our good deeds, the ones that we have already done, and destroys them, just like fire consumes dry wood. It's destructive. And that's just one disease. These diseases of the heart prevent the flourishing and the growth of our souls and of a Muslim. They prevent good deeds. We may perform good deeds externally, but within, we are sick, we are rotten. And just as Allah mentions about the hypocrites, in their hearts there is a disease, later towards the end of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Munafiqoon, speaking of the same hypocrites, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا رَأَيْتَهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَتْسَامُهُمْ وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ خُشْبٌ مُسَنَّدًا That if you look at these hypocrites, their bodies will impress you. And that's, of course, it's not a reference to all of the hypocrites, but some of them in Medina. For example, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He was the leader of the hypocrites. He was an Arab. Eth- ethnically, he was an Arab. But he had become a hypocrite. Or he was a hypocrite. And Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul had many of the qualities that we aspire to and that we admire. He was of a good build, physically imposing, strong, healthy. He was extremely handsome. He had a sweet, alluring voice. He was very eloquent in speech. He was a born leader. He was charismatic. In fact, before the arrival of Rasulullah in Medina, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was about to be crowned as their leader. They looked up to him greatly. And that was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. And this was one of the reasons why he was very bitter towards the Messenger وسلم, because he felt that the Messenger وسلم, had usurped his throne. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul had all of those qualities of charisma, of eloquence, of articulacy, of handsomeness, of beauty, 
of physical imposition, of leadership, that many of us admire and aspire to. He had all of them in bucket loads. And Allah attests to that in the Qur'an. That when you look at them, وَإِذَا رَأَيْتُهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَجْسَامُهُمْ Their bodies please you. وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ Allah continues that وَإِنْ يَقُولُوا And if they speak, تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ You listen attentively to their words. His speech and of some of the other hypocrites, they were very eloquent. Their speech was captivating. People listened to them. In fact, on the day of Uhud, the Prophet ﷺ marched from his masjid in order to face the Quraysh in the third year of Hijrah when they came to Medina to attack Medina. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, who was still a recognized leader, he marched with the army, or he joined the army. Ultimately, there were a thousand people following the Messenger. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Late, later, before the Prophet وسلم, arrived in Uhud in order to face the Quraysh, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul actually managed to convince 300 people to abandon the Messenger وسلم, to turn away. So he turned away and 300 of his followers joined him. So the Muslim army was reduced from 1,000 to 700, and they were eventually going to face 3,000 of the Quraysh. I relate this simply to explain that how at such a key moment, when the city of Medina was under threat, and the army, an army of 3,000 was at its door, and Muslims had to face them already in small numbers, small in numbers, at such a critical moment, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, because of his leadership, his eloquence, his position, he was able to convince 300 people to join him and to abandon the Messenger وسلم, and to turn their back on, their, on, on the Muslims. So he was very eloquent, he was charismatic. Even Allah attests to his eloquence, his charisma, his beauty, his physical structure. And yet Allah then says, Despite all this external beauty, charisma and eloquence, these hypocrites, they are no better than propped up planks of wood. As though they are planks of wood propped up. What that means is, in the garden, in rural areas nearby the house, just as you have building materials lying around, pieces of wood lying around, or maybe a piece of wood propped up against the wall, it's not entire, it looks good. It looks good because you think to yourself, well, this is good. It'll come in use someday. And therefore you leave it lying around or you prop it up against the wall. Before you realise it, years pass and it's still there. You've never done anything with it. 
So it looks good, it appears to be good, it appears to be useful, but in reality it's worthless. It's useless. That's the example Allah gives of the hypocrites. They look good, they sound good, they appear good, they may show potential, but ultimately they are utterly worthless and useless because of their empty, emptiness within. So Allah himself says they look good, they sound good. But there is a disease in their hearts. And that body is worthless. Just like a person suffering from cancer. In the early stages of cancer, when the cancer has not yet had a direct effect on the exterior of the body, but within the cancer is eating away at the organs. Allah protect us all. It's eating away at the organs. A person may look good and sound good, but if that disease is clawing away at their interior, is destroying their innards, is eating away at their flesh, their cells, destroying them from within, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for that individual, no matter how good they look, how good they sound. It's a tragedy for their loved ones. Soon that person will perish. They are already perishing, but it just doesn't appear to us. Soon they and others will see and begin to see the inner reality, which will come out. So, if we are so fearful and frightened, of physical diseases such as cancer and any other illness, then how fearful should we be of those diseases that eat away at us, that destroy us, that consume us from within the diseases of the heart, the sickness, the ailments, the illnesses of the soul. They are far more destructive. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, a person can look and sound good, but in their hearts there is a disease. These are the hypocrites. Utterly worthless. Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhima, both relate a hadith in their sahih from Al-Nu'man ibn Bashir, radiyallahu anhu, says, as part of a longer hadith, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Ala wa inna fil jasad mudghatan idha salahat, salaha al-jasad kulluh. وَإِذَا فَسَدَتْ فَسَدَ الْجَسَدُ كُلُّهُ أَلَا وَهِيَ الْقَلْبِ Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that know in the heart, in the body, know that in the body there is a heart, there is a piece of flesh. Know that in the body there is a piece of flesh. This piece of flesh, if it's good, the whole body is good. And if it's corrupt, then the whole body is corrupt. Know that that's piece of flesh is the heart. And here the Prophet ﷺ wasn't speaking about physical anatomy. He wasn't speaking about physical health. That if the heart is healthy, the body is healthy. Of course, we can, that, that is also true. Primarily, the Prophet ﷺ is speaking not of physical health, but spiritual health. And the meaning of the heart being pure, hence the body being pure, 
is that the body will perform good deeds. Pure in its spirituality, pure in its obedience to Allah, pure in its pure, pure in its faith, pure in its goodness. The goodness of the heart leads to the goodness of the body. The corruption of the heart, the sickness of the heart, will lead to the sickness of the body. Even though it may appear to be very healthy, ultimately that's not what makes a person. In fact, think of it this way. How many of us have been present at the bathing of a body? The bathing and enshrouding of a body. Has anyone, how many of us have been present? What's remarkable is that when you look at the body on that slab, man or woman, young or old, It appears to be extremely healthy, unless there are visible signs of wounds and injury. Normally, the body looks extremely healthy, even down to the fine hairs. And there is no difference between the person bathing the body and the body being bathed. It just looks like the person's asleep. No difference. So what distinguishes the one who is bathing the body and the body that's being bathed? What, what distinguishes a person standing and the person lying down? What's the distinction between them? They both look similar. One is awake, one, is, one appears to be asleep, that's all. Otherwise their skin, their bodily composition, their hairs, their nails, even down to the fine hairs and the skin of the body, all of that's intact. What's the difference? The only thing distinguishing them is the ruh. The one standing has a ruh, the one lying has no ruh. That's the only difference. Otherwise, as far as the body is concerned, the body is still intact. Everything's still there. The body doesn't begin to decompose and disintegrate except after a short while. And it takes a bit of time. And it's gradual. In fact, I heard recently in an interview with a, a leading scientist who studies death and the bodies of the dead and their minds. He was saying that even after a person dies, and they actually medically record a clinical death, that clinical death is recorded when a person's breathing comes to an end, and a person's heart stops functioning. But, the scientist, and this is not just a random scientist, this is a scientist whose field and area of expertise is studying the bodies and the minds and the brains of dead people, those who've just died. He was saying that from much of the body, it appears that the person is still alive. The person still appears to be alive when you look at the interior of the body, the cells, the flesh. Because even though the heart has stopped functioning, 
Many areas of the body continue to function. But the person is no longer alive, the person is dead. How do we explain that? How do we understand that? It's very simple. All of this brings back to us the reality of life. That the body is something else. The person is, in fact the body, parts of it may still be living, may still be alive. But we do not regard that as our loved one. Because the ruh has departed. It's the ruh that makes everything. The body can actually remain healthy even after death for a short while. But the person is no longer alive. The ruh has departed, disappeared. So all this attention that we lavish on our bodies to maintain its health, to promote its health, diet, exercise, fitness, appearance, cosmetics, it's misplaced. That doesn't mean that we don't take care of ourselves. Prophet Sallallahu has taught us that our bodies have a right over us. But Allah has a greater right over us than our bodies. And our ruh, our spirit has a greater right over us than our bodies. At the moment, the way we, many of us behave is that we assign no rights whatsoever to the ruh, in fact, we deny its very existence. If not in belief, then in practice. And all of our attention, our love, our care, our maintenance, our expenditure, all of this is reserved only for the body. But as much as we fear the diseases of the body, we should fear the diseases of the heart. And how, how much do we fear the diseases of the body? How many of us would imbibe poison consciously? How many of us would do it? No one. We attempt to eat healthily. As soon as there is a scare about a certain food product, that's it. Nobody touches it. Whether it's true or not, a rumour is sufficient to thwart us from eating a certain food. A rumour is sufficient. Because we want to maintain our health. At the beginning of each year, the most famous resolution is of joining the gym. That's the most famous resolution of joining the gym, of losing weight, of dieting. And this is how gyms make their money. I know a few gym owners. And if I can share with you some of their comments, remember these people are in the business. This is their business, this is their livelihood, this is their bread and butter. So they know everything about gyms. And the things they say about gyms are, some of what they say is as follows. One, one of the ways they make money is that people join a gym, pay the subscription fee, come once or twice, and then never bother again for the rest of the year. At least the intention is there. That's one way of making money. So they continue to receive the subscription, but no cost in terms of the actual customer. Another thing which I've heard from people working in gyms, as trainers or gym owners, is that, yes, some people come in for health reasons. 
But in their words, many, if not most, come merely to look good. So it's cosmetic. The idea, in fact, in the words of one gym owner, he explicitly said, speaking about young Muslims, that young Muslims, young Muslim men come into the gym, they pump themselves, they train rigorously throughout the week, they take supplements, and they do it all not for health reasons, but merely to look good when they go out on Friday and Saturday. Gyms are full of mirrors for people to admire themselves. I've mentioned this before, that in many parts of the world, Christian monks in their monasteries and nuns in their nunneries, they were forbidden from looking at mirrors. There were no mirrors in the entire nunnery or monastery, not a single mirror. None. Why? Because for these nuns and for these monks, to look into any mirror was an act of vanity, an act of self-conceit, an invitation to pride, an invitation to self-worship, when their devotion should not be towards them, directed at themselves, but should be directed at, at God, at their Creator. So, mirrors were banned. They were not allowed. Simply because this is an act of vanity. So, we train. We look after our health. Often just to look good. And there's vanity in the extreme. To look good for ourselves, to look good in front of others. In fact, one of the phrases in English is, and again I heard this uh, from a trainer at the gym, or a trainer from the gym, who said that your body is your temple. Worship it. And even if people don't voice this phrase, they abide by it. That's the mentality, that's the attitude. Your body is your temple, worship it. People worship, we worship our bodies. We admire ourselves. We shape ourselves. We, to us, our bodies are works of art to be sculptured and to be admired by ourselves and by others. That's all the attention we devote to our bodies and we are scared stiff of illness because we are scared stiff of death. Illness leads to death. As, just, as, as much as we are mortified by death, mortified by mort, mort in Arabic, it's very similar to the word death in many other languages, like French, mort. So mort in Arabic is similar to mort and other languages. That's where the word mortified comes from. Fear of death. So we are mortified by mort. 
As much as we are mortified by Malt's death, we are mortified by those illnesses and those conditions and those causes that will lead to death because of our love for long life. And yet in the process, we are physically strangling, killing off our own souls. We don't care at all, a tiff about the diseases that plague our hearts, which are far more destructive. We are so conscious about physical health and about physical illnesses that our bodies become cold when we hear of someone else suffering from an illness. We feel sorry for them. When we hear someone's got cancer, what do we feel? Sometimes even enemies, even enemies, they shed some of their hatred and they become somewhat sympathetic to their own enemy when they learn that their enemy has become seriously ill and has contracted a terminal illness. We fear cancer. We fear many of the diseases. In fact, in fact, again, very recently, I heard about, well, this is an ongoing thing, but one of the areas of research is prolonging life, and not just prolonging life, but finding the cure to death. To be able to switch off the genes that cause us to age, and to actually prevent death. And the thing which I heard recently, very recently, only in the past two, three days, was an attempt by scientists, a genuine attempt, to achieve everlasting life for human beings. That's, a, that's an area of research in which people are actively working to be able to achieve everlasting life and to cheat death. So, this is how much we love our bodies, that we want everlasting life for these bodies. But the soul, we are killing it in, in the process, even if we haven't killed it off already. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the Qur'an, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in the hadith, without going into specific verses and hadith, in general, Many of the verses, many of the hadith, all speak about the health of the heart, the health of the spirit. And as Muslims, we should be as fearful of the diseases of the heart as we are of the diseases of the body. The diseases of the heart, malice, envy, hatred, pride, conceits. These are very destructive, extremely destructive. This is what will make us or break us. And if we could just lavish some attention to our arwah, our spirits, as we do to our bodies, we would be far better people. In fact, Ramadan is coming in just two months. So a few weeks from now, we will begin the month of Ramadan. That's what Ramadan is all about. We are forced, we are compelled to divert attention from our body, away from our bodies, to our spirits in order to maintain the health of the heart, maintain the health of the ruh.
I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who whilst observing the rights of their bodies are also mindful and observant of the rights of their ruh, of their spirits. May Allah make us healthy of ruh, of spirit. May Allah protect us from the damning and destructive diseases of the heart. The heart should be thought of as a god. If you, if you have a garden and you want to plant flowers, fruits, fragrant flowers, beautiful greenery and vegetation, whether it's pleasant to eat or pleasant just to look at and smell in the garden. If you want to make a beautiful garden, One of the first things you have to do is clean out the garden. Remove thorns, nettles, brambles. Remove all of the weeds. And you have to remove them, clean and prepare the soil, and then maintain that hygiene. And ensure that those thorns, those nettles, brambles, those weeds don't become overgrown again. Otherwise, what will happen? You can't cultivate a garden with beautiful, pleasant, fragrant flowers and good vegetation, good produce, good fruits and vegetables. You cannot achieve any of this if you do not prepare the garden, and if you do not clean it out. If you try to do both of them simultaneously, okay, let's just plant our seeds and hope for the best, what will happen? Like any garden, you will see weeds, thorns, nettles, brambles and bushes rapidly and wildly grow and take over the whole garden and consume it. This example is good because this, this is how we can understand the heart. If you want to cultivate a good heart, if you want to instill the love of Allah, if you want to grow the love of Allah, the love of His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, love of the Akhirah, if you want to grow good morals, good characteristics, good traits, good healthy emotions, good feelings, good thoughts, if you want to create purity, pleasantness, fragrance in the heart, then one of the first things we must do is try to reduce and limit the growth of harmful elements, the thorns, the nettles, the bushes, the brambles, the weeds. We need to clean them out and we need to ensure that they remain removed. And what otherwise, they will overwhelm the heart. And what are the thorns, the nettles, the weeds? The killer plants, the killer ivy of the heart. These are the diseases of the heart. We can't work on both simultaneously in the sense that we can't just say, okay, I'll do a bit of good and hope for the best. So I'll try to do good, but I won't resist the evil. 
And it's not just sins of the flesh, it's sins of the heart. How can we grow the love of Allah when we harbor hatred towards everybody else? When we carry so much malice in us, so much hatred in us, how can we grow the love of Allah? How can we grow purity in our hearts when we have such impure feelings? How can we grow goodness in our hearts when we harbor so much envy? How can we grow the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which demands absolute servitude and humility when we are full of pride, haughtiness, arrogance and self-conceit and self-worship? They never go hand in hand. Any little attempt that we make will be overwhelmed and destroyed by the diseases that remain in us. So we have to make a conscious and a concerted effort to actually tackle these diseases. We can't just do good and hope that the good will overwhelm the evil. It doesn't work like that. We have to make a conscious and a concerted effort. That means we have to actually work on our envy. We have to work on our malice, on our hatred. We have to work on our pride. And I've spoken about pride. One of the ways of actively working on our pride is to forcibly humble yourself. You have to actually humble yourself forcibly. Just like Umar ibn al-Khattab did in that example I gave about the, him carrying water for the old women of the Ansar. He had a thought which he regarded as being arrogant. Just one thought. In order to break his pride, Umar ibn al-Khattab went at night, began filling water into the jars of the old women of the Ansar and carrying that water and emptying it into the jars outside the homes of the widows and the old women of the Ansar. Secretly he did that. He forced himself. He broke his pride by doing something practically. And that's just one example. So we can't just rid ourselves of any of the diseases of the heart, such as pride, without making a conscious and a concerted and a practical effort. The effort has to be mental. The effort has to be practical before we can spiritually cure it. And that would, that's the same for envy. One of the, if we harbour envy towards a person, one of the ways that the ulama have taught us to tackle that envy and cure it is not just to hope for the best or do do good deeds and hope that inshallah they will just rid our hearts of envy. No. We have to tackle the envy directly. The one that you are envious of, the ulama have taught us, in order to remove that envy from your heart, the very person that you are envious of, you should pray for them. You should bring yourself, force yourself to actually pray for them in secrecy. And that would be sincere. And eventually, and in fact not just pray for them, the way some of the ulama would tackle envy, if they, were, if they ever experienced envy towards another person, what would they do? They would pray for them. They'd actually give charity on their behalf. So they'd pinch themselves by giving money in the way of Allah and making the intention that, oh Allah, this 
charity, this sadaqah, I give on behalf of such and such a person. A few moments earlier, they were actually envious of them, and they felt bitter towards them. But they removed that envy and tackled it, and that bitterness, by doing good, not randomly, but doing good in that person's name, for that person. The person that they would be envious of, they would actually praise them in front of other people, sincerely. And in that way, they would crush their own soul. They would crush their own ego. And some of us may think, is that how a person should behave? We all have reasons to feel bitter towards someone. So why should we deny ourselves that anger and that bitterness? Is that a healthy way to live? Well, lo and behold, modern psychology teaches us that if you want to feel good, I've actually read many articles which all point to the same thing, that for your mental health, for your emotional well-being, and for you to feel happy, it's good to forgive. It's good to forgive. You feel happy. You know, right now, since many of us in the West at least, we, we have our basic needs catered for. We're not hungry, we're not thirsty, we're not unclothed. We have far too many clothes, we have far too much food, far too much to drink, far too much wealth. Really do. Even the poorest of us here in the UK, we are part of the elite of the world. First world problems. Which model smartphone should I get next? First world problems. We have far too much money. And yet, we're still not content. We're still not happy. So if you follow many of these articles in the news and magazines, etc., online... A lot of them are all to do with well-being, happiness, contentment, mindfulness, meditation. What's all of this leading to? It's all about feeling good. It's all about feeling better. Because people are beginning to realise that the health of the body, the wealth of the body, the food and nourishment of the body is not the be-all and end-all. There's something else And what many of these articles point to are some of the greatest truths and realities that Islam has taught us 1,400 years ago. And one of them is this. You want to feel serene. You want to feel tranquil. You want to feel content. You want to feel happy. Be grateful. Be forgiving. Be overlooking. Excuse people, excuse things, excuse people's lapses and misdemeanors. Don't harbour hatred. If, and, as I was mentioning earlier, do good, physical good, for people, towards people. Giving in charity actually makes people feel better. So, can you imagine... We say, we say that we should give in charity because of reward and to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But even those people who don't speak of reward or afterlife, 
merely for the mental and emotional happiness and well-being of a person, they prescribe charity. Now forget reward, forget God, forget afterlife, even if you don't believe in God. If you just want to feel good, if you really want to feel good, give in charity, share. That actually leads to happiness. And this isn't just some random talk. I mean, they've done MRI scans and they speak about neurology at the same time. That this actually fires off chemicals in the brain that makes a person feel good. So the way to tackle some of the diseases of the heart is to practically do things. You can't just hope that the diseases of the heart will disappear. Just like the physical diseases of the body, they have to be cured, they have to be tackled, they have to be treated by medicine, by treatment. Even on a prolonged basis, the diseases of the heart have to be treated in the same way. And as I said about envy, about anger, the ulama would themselves practice this and prescribe this. They would, in order to, bre in order to break their pride, they would forcibly humble themselves. Forcefully. In which way? The Sahaba anhum did it. The ulama after them have always done it. Force oneself to be humble. Serve others. Assist others. Go against what the nafs wants. One of the ulama said something brilliant. He was asked about speech. How should a person know when to keep quiet? <coughs> How should a person refine his speech? And his reply was exquisite. He said, Whenever my nafs tells me to keep quiet, I know that that is a right time to speak. And whenever my nafs tells me to speak, I know that that is the time to remain silent. So when the nafs tells a person to do something because it leads to pride, ultimately it will lead to achievement of pride, the ulama would break their nafs by refusing to do that thing. When the nafs would disdain doing something, feel that this is beneath me, this is unworthy of me, they would actually force themselves to do that thing. There have been ulama who would serve their students by pouring water for them, by preparing food for them. Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, famous Imam of Hadith, at night, he, he woke up repeatedly and he kept on stoking the fire. And one of his students was with him. Later, his student said to him that, Oh, Imam, you could have woken me up. And I would have taken care of stoking the fire regularly and repeatedly throughout the night. Why did you trouble yourself? He was young and he was a student. Imam Bukhari was older by that time. And he was a senior person in age, in authority, in knowledge because of his position. Imam Bukhari said that, no, you are a young man, you need your sleep, you need your sleep, 
you are a young man. I am old. Sleep is not that important for me. And therefore it didn't bother me in the least. And this is why I left you sleeping and I carried on doing what I had to. So you would break a sleep, get up repeatedly. This reminds me of another story of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, rahimahullah. It's related that he was seated and the oil ran out in the lantern. So Umar ibn Abdul Aziz stood up and he, he was Amir al-Mu'mineen, he was a leader of the Muslims at the time. And he pulled the oil and adjusted the wick. Or it may have just been the wick. Uh, the oil was there, but the wick needed adjusting. Either case, he adjusted the lamp so that the flame rose again. So he stood up and did that, and then resumed his seat. And then the other person carried on, he carried on talking to the other person. Now the other person was one of the subjects, someone inferior to him in position, in age, in authority, and in seniority. He was senior in every way. So the other person humbly said that, Oh, Amir al-Mu'mineen, because he was called Amir al-Mu'mineen, leader of the faithful. Why didn't you tell me and allow me to do it? So Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, rahimahullah, said, What does it matter? I was Umar before I rose to adjust the wick, and I am still Umar after doing it. So the ulama, the sulaha, the pious ones, the learned ones, they would force themselves, they would adopt practical measures to tackle these diseases of the heart, not just pray and hope for the best. That means when it came to envy, they forced themselves into humility. When it came, uh, sorry, arrogance, they forced themselves into humility. When it came to being envious of other, other people, they would actually go out of their way. They do good to them, for them, pray for them in their absence, praise them in their absence, give charity in their absence. And in this way, they would break their envy and tackle shaitan. This is how the diseases of the heart need to be treated. They need to be treated not just by prayer and wish, but practically with a conscious concerted effort, just like we treat the diseases of the body. And in that regard, inshallah, over the next few months, as and when possible, I will devote some time to each of these individual diseases. I've already spoken about arrogance and haughtiness, and inshallah I'll continue speaking about some of the other diseases. And uh, not just speak about them, their dangers, their harms, but also hopefully address some of the practical ways in which we can rid ourselves of these diseases in order to be healthier people. Healthy not just physically and mentally, most importantly, to be healthy emotionally and spiritually. I pray that Allah enables all of us to understand. Sallallahu wasallam ala abdihi wa rasulih. Nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.